Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. We're back two centuries this hour to the source code of the American experiment, very particularly back to John Quincy Adams's caution about the United States' role in a contentious world. I'm sitting under a portrait of John Quincy Adams, and he's not smiling here in the Massachusetts Historical Association, but he's a star of this incredible collection of Adams family papers. Three generations, two presidents among them. Sarah Martin, you've got the handwritten copy of the famous speech. It's July 4th, 1821. Adams is Secretary of State in the Monroe administration. Adams's wife has copied out his draft manuscript about the U.S. in the wider world. It goes, wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers be. And then Adams adds in his own handwriting, quite different, but she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. There it is. There it is. It's a really significant edit, even though it's a single sentence. Characterize this guy. You probably know him better than anybody alive. He's always described as austere. JFK gave him profile in courage for his all-round brains and tough-mindedness in general. The Monroe Doctrine, which excluded European adventures in this whole hemisphere, was truly drafted in the work of Adams, could be called the Adams Doctrine. So he's an all-American believer and a bit of an imperialist, too, in this hemisphere. Who was he to you? So he is the eldest son and second child of Abigail and John Adams. He was born in 1767, and so he experienced the American Revolution as a child. But he was also born into a family of public servants. Really from cradle to grave, his duty was to country. He was born in the fire of the Revolution, in a real sense, 67. Uh, we got 10 hard years in Boston, including the British blockade of the Boston Harbor, all that stuff, and he's just a kid watching. He later writes his recollections of watching the Battle of Bunker Hill alongside his mother, standing on the hillside near their house where they can see as far to Charlestown and watching it burn. And then, of course, he witnesses the global aspects of the revolution because he accompanies his father overseas when John Adams is sent on diplomatic missions in the 1770s. He really understands the revolution and its principles in a very detailed way from a young age. What more do we know about him as a father, as a husband, as a politician? John Quincy Adams was incredibly principled. And those principles were learned from his father, developed on his own, but he stuck to those principles despite outside influences. I think you can see the change in politics, you know, his split from the Federalist Party of his father, because he maintained a principled stance. And he had a deep commitment to Republican virtues and legal principles. But I think even more than what you see as his integrity in politics and his really principled and sometimes austere stand, 
you can see through all of his writings from his diary to his writings with family, you see more of personality, a deep love of literature, a commitment to knowledge, all things being equal. He would have happily spent his life reading and writing, and he enjoyed being a Harvard professor for a period of time. You know, but that family commitment to public service really runs through everything. But he can be quite charming. He was quite dashing in his youth and much less austere looking. He could joke. He wrote poetry. He was deeply interested in gardening, kind of the dailiness of his life that comes through his diary and his letters sometimes really give a more nuanced picture of the man. Sarah Martin is the editor-in-chief of the priceless Adams Papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society in Boston. James Traub wrote the esteemed modern biography of John Quincy Adams, Militant Spirit is his subtitle. We're hooked on the signature line of the president you've restored to us in a modern biography of John Quincy Adams. Crackerjack mind, a man of principle, no president ever better prepared for the job and all that. But have at the line, the doctrine, no going abroad in search of monsters to destroy, which the United States has done a lot of in the last century. Give it to us in his context, 1821, two centuries ago. I think the context is terribly important to make sense of this expression because if you go back another generation, America was this tiny embattled little country and George Washington had famously said in his farewell address that America should not allow itself to have either alliances, permanent alliances or permanent antipathies because if it allowed itself to grow organically for a generation, it would soon reach the point where it could bid defiance to its enemies. Well, that moment had come by 1821. The United States had fought a second war on its own territory, the War of 1812, and they had repelled the British. And so the moment when the United States was this kind of shuttlecock between the great European powers felt like it was over. And so then the question was, okay, America is this little burgeoning country. What should it do in the world? And that was the question that was being decided at the moment that Adams spoke those famous words, which were in a July 4th, 1821 speech. So what was he talking against? Who were the monsters in his head? He felt that there were big voices, including Henry Clay, a person who would be challenging him for the presidency in 1824, who was eager to engage in the kinds of idealistic crusades that we now, of course, are all too accustomed to, but at that time were quite new. And what Clay had been talking about at the time in 1821 was much more dramatic attempts to free the Spanish republics, which is to say the countries of South America, from the dominion of Spain. They were all struggling to be free countries. Clay wanted the United States to actively help them, at least rhetorically, if not in some other way. Adams said, no, we of course wish them well. We wish them to succeed. We wish them to be free. And in fact, Adams would have said, and they will be. They will be. They don't need our help. It's not a good use of American power, and I warn against it. His phrase, no search of 
monsters to destroy. It becomes a concise pitch, even in his time, for foreign policy realism. Consider the results. Don't get swept into other people's battles. Beware ideology and passion. I want you to review it as a doctrine for his time, maybe for all time in his head, but then for our time. I would not say that he would have said, beware ideology and passion. First of all, because uh, Adams was an incredibly uh, passionate, vehement person, but also because he had an ideology. His ideology was a kind of aggressive, bellicose republicanism. It's important not to thoughtlessly map that world onto this world and to see the totality of Adams's views, because I think we would say, from the point of view of a people who would call themselves realists today, that Adams was no realist. That is to say, he was a realist in a very specific sense, which is he said, other states are going to be acting according to their interests. And we must take into account the fact that they will do so. And you can go much further back. You can go to the time when Adams was a diplomat in Holland in 1794 when he was a very young man. And he talked about France that way. He warned about French intentions because he feared that the French had decided that it was in their interest to dispute English power in, in North America. So in that sense, he was a dry-eyed person who understood the motives of other states. But if you asked Adams about the United States, he would have spoken in a very different language. First of all, because he was a devout believer in the idea that providence, that heaven, had in effect appointed America as the spokesman for republicanism, to broadcast and represent republicanism to the world. And indeed, the very last sentence of that famous July 4th, 1821 speech says, in effect, America is not going to aggressively seek to actually produce democracies in other countries, but in effect, he let out a kind of cry, go thou and do likewise to the peoples of the world. You too should become Democrats. Beyond that, for Adams, foreign policy did not only mean relations with France and England. It meant expansion of America's own footprint on the North American continent. Remember, in 1821, most of North America was not American, or maybe half of it wasn't. It belonged to Spain, it belonged to France, it belonged to Russia. Adams's goal, and the goal really of all the founding fathers, was to realize what later came to be called a manifest destiny. That word doesn't come along until 1845 to spread America across the continent. And in that regard, he was aggressive, he was unflinching, he was unfair, because he felt that this was America's birthright and nothing made him prouder than the treaty that he had concluded with Spain in 1819, which in effect codified America's control over the territory that it had gained in the Louisiana Purchase and drew a line of American control from there to the Pacific Ocean, which Adams felt would soon be fully realized as an American continent. So that's a broader context for his vision. Coming up, more James Traub and the inexhaustible drive of this JQA. 
who served in Congress after the White House. He also famously argued the Amistad case before the Supreme Court on behalf of the Africans who had liberated themselves on a slave ship in 1839. Here is the commanding Adams voice as the actor Anthony Hopkins delivered it in the Spielberg movie. Your Honors, this is the most important case ever come before this court. Because what it in fact concerns is the very nature of man. This is open source. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. In the John Quincy Adams speech from 1821, our guest, the biographer James Traub, hears the fountainhead of what in the 21st century is presented as foreign policy realism. Adams would have said that the American impulse to aggressively intervene abroad in the name of yeah. those values an impulse that was growing at that time and that would be addressed again in the Monroe Doctrine, I believe Adams should be considered the chief author of, right. was dangerous. And so the Monroe Doctrine, which emerges after debates in the cabinet where Adams is the most important voice, says to Europe, your place is not here, but our place is not there. And so in effect, there is a deal being offered which is we won't intervene in your world and you will leave to us the uh, dominion over this world. It comes out as a sort of benign isolationism. No, it's not. No, 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 it's not isolationism. Adams was in no sense an isolationist. And for that matter, when George Washington said there should be no permanent antipathies or permanent alliances, he was in no way being an isolationist. That's not the heritage of these men. They feared that America would be entangled in what they regarded as a corrupt European system, a system that was governed not by the will of ordinary people, but because these were monarchical and tyrannical countries, they were governed by the wishes of princes. And so when Monroe says in the Monroe Doctrine that these foreign struggles that were going on across Europe were things that were not America's business and America did not wish to get involved in, even though it was a well-wisher to Republican movements in Europe, that's what he meant. These men all had a deep sense that America stood apart because it was a Republican country. And it was therefore a, a morally superior country. This is a way that no realist would ever talk today, that sense of moral grandiosity. But that's what they all believed. They thought Europe was a fallen world and Adam said, if you get entangled there, you'll become like them. He says that quite explicitly in the July 4th right. speech. Jim, you write in your book on JQA that realism, his and maybe ours today, is too chastened a doctrine, perhaps too selfish a doctrine for a nation of idealists. We are too easily tempted by moral crusades. George Bush in Iraq, worst example. But Vietnam, too, at John Kennedy's cue, perhaps. Isn't that temptation to crusading exactly what John Quincy Adams was warning us about, what to beware of? 
the problem with historical analogies, they're indispensable. If you don't believe history matters, you don't write history. At the same time, you have to recognize that each of these things is organic in its own moment, and therefore be careful about simply mapping that world on to this world. And so that's why I made a point of saying that Adams was incredibly bellicose when it came to territorial expansion in North America, though he was highly yes. prudential and cautionary when it came to entanglement in Europe. But if you were to say to me that Adams would not have approved of the speeches that Woodrow Wilson delivered to persuade Americans to enter World War I, I would say, I don't know that. I, I can't extrapolate that. Well, we won't assume that either. Well, so what I mean is that this idealistic strain, this crusading strain in American foreign policy, after this moment that you and I are talking about, essentially goes underground. And the Civil War is this moment when America is not a moment, it's a long, long multi-generational period when America is consumed with its internal contradictions. And then it emerges in the late 19th century as this immense industrial power. And the question is posed again, again, and in a very different way. When America is much more powerful, what's the power for? And so Wilson then becomes this new figure. who really, He's the real fountainhead of this idealistic American foreign policy for good and for ill. And he says, under what term should the United States enter this world war taking place yeah. thousands of miles from us? What are we doing there? And Wilson did not say we're there to protect our interests. And if our interests were, were not implicated, we wouldn't go. No. No, he doesn't. He says we're there because we now are part of the world in the way that we weren't before, in a way that God knows we were not when John Quincy Adams was president or secretary of state. We are now ineluctably part of the world. And he said that the United States can only be safe in this world if it is a world of democratic countries which are governed by their own people. Now, he may have been wrong about that. And I think arguably he was wrong about that. But that's the real origin of this thing. And I think we need to recognize that. And I think we need to be able to answer the question, if Wilson was wrong about that, what were the terms? I mean, Roosevelt had very different terms. But I would say that Wilson was quite right in thinking that the only way he could persuade the American people to enter this war was to appeal to their idealism. That was, even Henry Kissinger, by the way, concedes that in his book on, on diplomacy. So that language, Americans, maybe they don't today, they sure did until recently, resonate to that language. And I would say again, for good and for ill, that is also the cause of some of the most stupid and reckless things the United States has done. You can't very easily entangle these two things, the good from the bad. It was George Kennan, after World War II, start of the Cold War, who revived the John Quincy Adams doctrine. What did he mean by it? He was talking about restraining the Soviet Union, but not getting into a fresh war with our recent ally. Well, first of all, you know, Kennan was part of a larger group. I mean, you could say it was Hans Morgenthau, you know, and others who laid out the principle 
that states are actuated by their more or less objective interests. Their ideals are mostly epiphenomenal. Meaning? Not totally irrelevant, but don't take them at face value and understand why states act the way they do. Well, that was a very important check on some of America's most dangerous impulses. And we should say, by the way, that both Morgenthau and Kennan were extremely early opponents of the Vietnam War. Both of them, though you wouldn't have said they were men of the left, neither one was, saw the danger of that crusading spirit. And so realism in that respect has been a, an all-important check on those dangerous impulses. So, you know, at, at the very least, I would say two cheers for realism. We're talking about guidelines for America in the world of the 21st century. What value do you find still in the Quincy Adams warning? Prudence. Prudence. Prudence is a great Adams word. He uses it all the time. And prudence is a great realist word. It's a word, by the way, that, that Morgenthau used all the time. And by the way, people like Reinhold Niebuhr used the word prudence. He, he thought of prudence as being the great political virtue. So what does that mean? It means always cross-examining our own impulses. And it means, you know, measuring thrice and cutting twice. It means recognizing our own frailties. And so, especially for Americans, this goes all the way back to when Henry Clay, you know, would have had the United States intervening on behalf of Greece against Turkey. And Adams said, well, have you thought about what the Turks will do if you do that? That's the prudential answer. What's going to happen if you do that? How will other people think about our behavior? Well, that is a crucial legacy yep. of Adams's form of thinking. Is there a way to both separate but rate the wisdom of this aphorism about monsters to destroy, A, in his time, B, in our time, and C, as an all-time doctrine? <laughs> I don't know how to rate it. It's, it's certainly way up there in memorable phrases. Of all of Adams's phrases, and he was a great phrase maker, it is the one that has come down to us. So the very fact that it's come down to us shows how resident it is and how relevant it is to today. And so I, that I fully accept, even if I think it is not the, uh, the, the be-all and the end-all to trying to think about America's place in the world today. It's a start. And this conversation is a good start, too. James Traub, author of a wonderful modern biography of John Quincy Adams. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Andrew Basevich is a retired Army officer, a Vietnam veteran, trained at West Point, who became a prolific historian and then a policy critic. He drew on John Quincy Adams's name in founding the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in 2019 to advocate for restraint and realism about American military power. Andy Basevich, you brought John Quincy Adams back to life in 21st century America, and there's still something missing, though, in his message that has not caught on with the war in Ukraine in our background. I want you to remind us of why you embrace both the man and the message and where it goes from here. Well, I think we, we should begin by reminding ourselves that he was an Adams. Amen. He was the 
a son of one of the great American families. John Adams, his father, was one of the formative figures in the revolution in, in the early national period. Wrote the Constitution, virtually. And his father believed in American greatness. I would argue that John Quincy Adams believed in American greatness. The big question, however, was how best to achieve that aspiration, how best to fulfill that aspiration. In our own time, in the 21st century, I think I would say in particular in the post-Cold War and post-9-11 period, American leaders have come to believe that American greatness is best exercised and maintained through military means. And therefore, we find ourselves now in a condition of virtually perpetual war. We find ourselves in a situation where, even though we profess to be a peace-loving nation, we have the world's biggest military budget, most powerful military force, most, most far-flung uh, armed force. And we also find ourselves experiencing a domestic crisis that I think most of us, certainly including me, have difficulty getting our head around. Mm. You know, how did the republic that we love arrive at the condition in which we're in now? And which condition in particular you think about? The condition that is expressed by things like the January 6th insurrection. Mm. You know, the internal divisions, the threat to the Constitution, Trumpism, broadly speaking, all of that. And I have come to believe that we, we got where we are in particular because we failed to listen to the counsel of people like John Quincy Adams, who warned explicitly that were we to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy, we would ultimately destroy our own democracy. Mm. Now, we haven't destroyed it, but it seems to me that we are experiencing a crisis that we haven't seen since the Civil War. And therefore, now is the time to heed his wisdom. Now, you know, there are those who would say, oh, hi, well, 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 what, what you're calling for isolationism. You want America to withdraw. You want America to return its, turn, to, to turn its back on the world. And, and of course, that's, that's absurd. The question is, how do we best exemplify the values that we profess to stand for in a way that can work to the benefit of the rest of the world, while also simultaneously delivering on the promise of our revolution to the American people. Andy, I think part of the problem around John Quincy Adams is there's a twofold character here. In the Western Hemisphere, he was a vigorous imperialist expansionist in this continent, in the hemisphere. Rest yes. Restraint was for abroad. And there's even some thought that Restraint was not in, in our character in subduing this continent. Manifest destiny. No, it was ours. God gave it to us and wanted us to have it, no matter the human restraints that might have been applied. So it's that character almost that comes through louder and clearer in the 21st century. We're still that muscular, almost ruthless expansionist. What if that's as deep in our character as anything else? I think that that... Uh that is an oversimplified narrative. I don't want to come across as a defender of American imperialism. I certainly would not disagree with your characterization about the ruthlessness 
that informed the expansionist project, you know, basically centered on the 19th century, in which John Quincy Adams played an important role. And quite frankly, a project that was a prerequisite for the Republic transforming itself from a fairly insignificant collection of states on the eastern seaboard of North America into an economic powerhouse. In many respects, it's an ugly story and needs to be confronted. But nonetheless, in a sense, the question is where to draw the line. My own sort of personal take on the, on the, on the narrative of, of United States history is that where we went wrong was in 1898. Not, not trying to excuse, whitewash what happened before 1898. But what was Spain, in Cuba, in the Philippines? Precisely. When, when the imperial project, and it was an imperial project even in the 19th century, most vividly, of course, with, with the war, war with Mexico. But after 1898, the imperial project became self-destructive wasn't evident at first, you know, the, constant, the, the immediate outcome of the war of, of the Spanish-American War is a big empire with Philippines, mm. Cuba, Hawaii, and so on. But that's, I think, where we got a taste of foreign empire. That didn't go away. Again, one would be careful not to oversimplify, but when we look at then the ensuing narrative of the 20th century, centered on the two world wars and then the Cold War, the United States engaged in further expansionism that turned out not to be in the interests of the American people and turned out to have costs far greater than the architects of American policy anticipated. I'm not trying to say that World War II was, you know, that U.S. participation was misguided. It was necessary. These things are not black and white. They're complicated. Mm. We went on a path where the warnings of John Quincy Adams suddenly become prescient. Mm. And I think that's why I, for one, think that he becomes, you know, a prophet for our times here in the 21st century. And the, the notion of a foreign policy that emphasizes restraint, avoiding overreach, having a greater awareness of the of the consequences that stem from misusing military power those are notions that that the american people need to reflect on and that our political leaders need to incorporate into u.s policy in ways that they have not done for you know from where i sit i am just amazed by the fact that 20 years after the beginning of the global war on terrorism and Iraq war that certainly did not go well, an Afghanistan war that ended in defeat, uh, if the two parties in Congress agree on one thing, it is that we need to spend more money on our military. How can it be that given the events of the last 20 or so years, the voices that question the emphasis on American military primacy are almost difficult to, to hear. There's virtual silence on that score. Coming up, memorable models in modern history, from Dwight D. Eisenhower to Martin Luther King Jr. This is Open Source.
I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source with Andrew Basevich of the Quincy Institute. James Traub, Quincy Adams' biographer, had an interesting remark in his long and serious book that John Quincy Adams is then and now a kind of caution of restraint, of realism. Check the results. But he goes on to say that realism may be too chastened a doctrine, perhaps too selfish a doctrine for a nation of idealists. Idealist being the best name you can call, shall we say, the war party. Does that help to think of us as a nation of rambunctious idealists, reckless idealists, as much as we are realists? The notion, you know, really here undergirded by the claim of, of American exceptionalism. Right. Now, the we are unique in the ranks of great powers in the modern era is simply false. You know, we can tell nice stories about ourselves, comforting stories, and we can cherry pick our history in order to provide some amount of support. But at the end of the day, it's just cherry picking. It's not sufficiently comprehensive. Mm. In a way, your question, I think, gets to a key point, which is the difficulty that, as a, that we have as a people, as a nation, of seeing ourselves as we really are. You know, it's been, it's a, a, come to be a phrase uh, fairly common in American politics. I know Biden has used it, Obama has used it. After, for example, some mass shooting, that's not who we are. Mm. That's not who we are. Well, sorry to say, that is who we are. These awful events that happen with considerable frequency, far greater frequency uh, than in other countries, yeah, that's part of who we are. And part of uh, who we are as a people is that we've become excessively militarized. Uh, we use our military recklessly with virtually no accountability, right. with the American people offloading the costs onto a very small part of the population, those who can be induced to volunteer. That's who we are. And if we examine that, I think it's not a pretty picture when you stop and say, well, well, so how are we doing? Right. You know, what's the win loss record? Well, it's crappy. In professional sports, it would get you fired. But we just go on and on. I, I myself have been appalled by the extent to which this horrible criminal war in Ukraine. Let's talk about it. Has become an excuse to forget about Afghanistan. Longest war in American history ends in abject defeat. Who did we lose to? We lost to the Taliban, a movement, not really an army, that didn't have an air force, didn't have a navy, didn't even have modern weaponry. And we lost. Well, how did that happen? I mean, that's a question that in our politics has basically gone unasked. I find that appalling because, thanks to Mr. Putin, uh, we've, we've come up with an excuse to simply shift our attention away from Afghanistan to, to Ukraine. I find the whole thing appalling. There's a pattern in it, I hate to say, but finding a new war that may redeem the last failure or make us forget it. That's exactly right. I mean, it's not right in every instance. You know, when the, when the Cold War ended, and I think it's fair to say that the Cold War ended, <laughs> within the Cold War, we had more than our fair share of failures. You know, let's talk about Vietnam. 
But the Cold War ended basically on favorable terms to the United States and its allies. But we took that success rather than saying, okay, good, now we can become a normal nation. We can get rid of some of this, this military. On the contrary, with the end of the Cold War, we embarked upon new crusades, whether we're talking about in the Balkans or we're talking about East Africa or the Levant, ultimately after 9-11 in Afghanistan and, uh, and Iraq. And certainly the win-loss record of the post 911 uh, military uh, uh, efforts has been abysmal. And you began by saying, we got to remember these are Adamses. Strangely enough, in this period, I have been reading Stacey Schiff's biography of Samuel Adams, and it's a very stirring story. Here was exactly the guy that we all want to be leading our country today. He's a Puritan. John Adams said he was the revolution. Hmm. Nothing but respect for a sort of barrel-chested, two-fisted, a glorious man of principle. And to have a beer named after him 200 years later is, is, a, is a kind of... No, but it, the people who made that beer were looking for a model of, let's face it, the American guy. And mm. he's an enormously impressive embodiment of it. Well, I don't think we're going to be naming beers after any of the principal figures on the national stage today. I think sure. you're right, unfortunately. In the politics you observed in the 20th and 21st century, what's the closest you've come to an embodiment, seeing a politician with these values of seriousness, of pride in America, and still restraint? Well, I mean, to me, the, my uh, model in that regard is Martin Luther King, who was a politician. But if we push it and say, no, 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 it has to be somebody who, who was elected, I think I would say Dwight D. Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. And I would hasten to say President Eisenhower had many faults and should be taken to task for them, whether we're talking about misguided CIA operations or whether we're talking about the uncontrolled buildup of nuclear weapons that occurred on his watch. But I think as a result of his experience as a soldier leading allied forces in Europe, he had come to a fairly deep appreciation for American democracy. He commanded a people's army in Europe and had a deep appreciation for the negative consequences, both direct and indirect, of, of warfare. We caught that in some speeches that he made as president, but of course we caught that especially in his famous farewell address where he warned against the evils of the military-industrial complex. In, in, in some respects, we've got John Quincy Adams warning against going abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And we've got President Eisenhower in 1961, on the eve of his departure from the White House, warning against allowing the military industrial complex to wield too much power. Both of those, it seemed to me, are statements of enormous wisdom with continued relevance to where we are today. Both of them together spoke to deep truths uh, that we need to revive to make part of our politics today. Andy, I'm fascinated by your introduction of Martin Luther King Jr. as this spirit we're looking for. A lot of his character relates directly to Samuel Adams. He was relentless. He was, yeah. had a narrow focus, as Samuel Adams did. It was about freedom mm -hmm. and independence. And he would not be distracted. He would not be delayed. Martin Luther King was gifted also with a profound religious confidence that God was watching. What a, what a great comparison. 
<laughs> That's fabulous. Samuel Adams was taller, I think, but a sort of a solid, manly frame. Direct talk. Everybody knew what he was about. Take it back to Ukraine. What would our model of restraint, of confidence, of American assertion, but not in a military dimension, how would that leader have responded to the crisis in Ukraine? Well, I think the proper response was certainly to condemn Putin's aggression. The proper response is to provide support for Ukraine and the gallant effort by Ukrainians to defend their country. But the other part of that response is to use American influence as vigorously as possible to, to bring this awful war to an end. It appears to me that the efforts of the Biden administration are directed at extending the war, prolonging the war, under the delusion that by increasing the, the punishment sustained by Russia, that there will be some long-term benefit to the United States. I think that's a very short-sighted uh, view. Again, one would not want to let Putin off the hook here. He's the bad guy. But a, a, a wiser approach to statesmanship would seek to find ways to end this terrible conflict as expeditiously as possible. The United States has not made any meaningful effort along those lines, as far as I can tell. I find it uncanny that we're continually reminded that the American policy and the nuclear confrontation may well be on the course toward World War III. And it's not taken as, a, as an urgent warning to get off that course. Well, uh, I think you're right. Of course, first of all, we have bigger things on our plate, Chris. You know, we're, we're worried about tickets to concerts. What's your name? Taylor Swift. We're preoccupied with the, the World Cup. I'm preoccupied with the World Me Cup. Me too. We have long since grown accustomed to the existence of large-scale nuclear arsenals uh, poised to be used. So that whereas, let's say, in the 1950s, or, for example, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when there was a, you know, a broad, there was an acute public awareness that, that nuclear weapons posed a danger. Uh, and it, it, it's difficult to understand why, but that no longer exists. Uh, we somehow accept that since they haven't been used since 1945, they won't be used. Hmm. Uh, the naivete is breathtaking. And I think that the Biden administration, again, not entirely oblivious to the nuclear danger that, that is, uh, you know, waits in the wings, but certainly has not done much to alert the American people to that danger. Make what you can of the World Cup in the background. I find it immensely interesting. More popular than the Olympics by far. It is not design on a war model, which the Olympics have come to be. It's a peace model. It's a universal model. It's a multicolored model. And most striking to me of all, these extraordinary athletes are sort of liberated men. They're modern men. They're very affectionate with each other. They respect each other. They know each other incredibly well. They support and pick up off the ground their opponents. They also open us to not just pyrotechnics and unbelievable feats of, of the human body, but to the sadness 
around Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the great heroes, and he is last seen this past weekend crying as he left the field, probably for the last time in a World Cup. There's a, there's a humanity about it. There's a universality about it. An air of peace about it, in short. Am I crazy? I don't think you're crazy. I, I, uh, <laughs> this past weekend was the Army-Navy game, so I... I... <laughs> There's the war, the war game. Well, and I felt obliged to tune it in for a while. Having just watched uh, one of the World Cup uh, matches, and I was struck as never before about really the infer inferiority of American football as a contest, as a sport, in contrast right. with what the rest of the world calls football. It's just not as interesting. It's not as beautiful. It's not beautiful at all. But that's somehow what we've become stuck with uh, as, our, as our actual national pastime having superseded uh, baseball in that role. But the juxtaposition between the World Cup and an American football game really drives home how elegant and fascinating football, the real football, the world football uh, has become. Andy Bezovich, how will this country teach itself restraint? I think the key is to have an honest accounting of our own history. Hmm. You know, American history is not simply some glorious account of our rise to primacy. It's also not some uh, dark story of oppression. It's a complex story, and it's one that, if honestly told, I think, continues to have great relevance to the present moment. And uh, I have really come to believe that if you want to understand the dysfunction that we are experiencing at home, that we find so dangerous and appalling, there are connections to the recklessness of U.S. policy abroad. Mm. The two have to somehow be in harmony. They have to support one another. And that's not the case. If you take a look at the national security strategy published by the Biden administration several weeks ago, it is filled with cliches that would make you think that the events of the past dozen or 20 years with regard to our military efforts abroad, that they simply had not happened. Mm. So we get all the language of, you know, American leadership and American ideals and a great military. It's a suggestive of an, of an administration, and I think really of a political class that has learned nothing. And that's very discouraging. Where, where do we reach anew for an answer to discouragement, Andy? We're all feeling it. We know we got to come out of it. Where are we looking? Well, it's, it's a time when we need heroes, you know, people who shine the light, who, people who shone the light mm. in their day and who, who can shine the light today. And in that regard, it seems to me we all have our personal heroes uh, and we would probably disagree on who ought to be the heroes. You know, for me, it's Martin Luther King. Mm. For me, it's Reinhold Niebuhr. For me, it's, it's Dorothy Day. Amen. And for me, it's John Quincy Adams. And, you know, I could go on and name another five or six or, 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 or ten people in different walks of life, but who embodied in their day great wisdom that we badly need to recover. And in the present moment, we can't even hear them. 
because there's so much static and so much trivia that I think the sources of wisdom have been buried. And so it's very, they're very difficult to recover. I find a kind of tonic for discouragement in our own history. Sam Adams, as I've said, but William James, great minds, great doers. There have been men and women of character who have achieved some form of greatness mm. and, and they deserve to be rediscovered. This new biography of Sam Adams is an example of that rediscovery. And I dare say there are many others. Let's close on Sam Adams and remember him, not just to tout the book, but there is a Bostonian too, buried in the old granary burying ground on Tremont Street. First name you see when you walk in. He's one of ours, and he's a man of enormous size. Andy Basevich, thank you for this conversation, but thank you for the Quincy Institute. Thank you for a good part of a year working together on the traces of history in our own deep predicament. This has been really important for all of us. Chris, it's been a great partnership, and we, uh, you know, speaking on behalf of the Quincy Institute, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Andy Basevich. Thanks also to James Traub, author of John Quincy Adams' Militant Spirit, and to Sarah Martin, editor-in-chief of the Adams Papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society. See and read more about the astonishing Adams family online at masshist.org slash Adams. You've just heard the conclusion of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org or at their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. And look for a bonus on our site with Stephen Van Evera of MIT, defining what realism means to him. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leighton. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of smart, independent podcasters, including Vermont-based producer Erica Heilman. Her Peabody Award-winning show is Rumble Strip, which was honored by the New York Times this month among the best podcasts of the year. Find her series at rumblestripvermont.com and browse the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org.